0: All right, looks like we're live. Cool. Well, this is episode six of the social brain. And today we're talking about something that uh, I think is is really important to kind of have discussions about this. This is about addiction. Uh, and it's something that affects what 50 million people in the United States. And if we're thinking about kind of normal, kind of non-communicable diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, addiction kind of falls into a category that's higher than, than each of these on their own. And so these prevalence rates are, are really important to kind of think about because what I think it says, especially as, as someone that studies the brain, is that what addiction is is it's it's really tapping into these natural processes the way that the brain kind of naturally works um and it's kind of being hijacked in a way and so today we're going to really kind of dig into what are those processes that are going on in the brain that are kind of driving us towards kind of wanting these these drugs that we may not even like anymore um and what makes kind of relapse so hard to fight right even years later uh what are those things that are really contributing to that and Ultimately, kind of listen through to the end because we're really going to dig in at the end into a lot of the strategies that are that are really effective, kind of taking all of these neuroscience principles uh, into account of how you can really fight this stuff and kind of stay sober or whatever it is that you want to do. So uh, this is the, the social brain. This is a place where we, uh, me and Andrew, love talking about neuroscience, talking about the brain. Uh, I'm Taylor Guthrie. I'm a social neuroscientist. I've actually taught graduate courses on addiction. Uh, but yeah, and this is Andrew.
1: Yep, I'm Andrew, and I uh, I run Sense of Mind, a YouTube neuroscience YouTube channel, and um, before we jump into this, I also just wanted to say, as Taylor mentioned, this, you know, addiction affects so many people in this country, and I think in recent years, we've heard a lot about the opioid epidemic, and um, I think, you know, I personally had friends who have been Uh, really negatively affected by that and have fallen into opioid addiction and so you know i know that this can be a really personal issue for a lot of people and so I, i encourage anybody who who that's true for to think about this as we're talking about it and how um how addiction functions like the mechanisms behind it and maybe that can help give you a better understanding of why this happens maybe it's to yourself or to somebody else you know but um yeah, as, as Taylor said, it's part of these natural processes in the brain. So um, yeah, I just hope that can be useful for some people.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's hard enough to go through it yourself, but this is a disease that affects everyone around the person that's affected. I mean, this is a very social disease in general. Um, and it's really hard to watch those people that we love to go through these kind of things, um, especially when we don't understand how powerful these these forces are that are kind of under the hood these biological forces that are really kind of driving a lot of this behavior it's really easy to kind of fall back into uh, what's often called the moral model of like they're just making bad decisions right they're bad people because they're doing these things uh but there are some some really strong motivators that are pushing their behavior in that direction or pushing your behavior in that direction Um, and it's it's really kind of uh empowering to understand kind of what may be driving that and what kind of things you can do kind of on a neurological basis to kind of fight those urges, to, to really kind of stay strong throughout the day.
1: Yeah, yeah, and like just understanding those those neurological mechanisms can, can allow you to work with your brain better if, if you're struggling with addiction or if you know somebody who is to, to understand what they're going through. Um, but yeah, so maybe we should kind of jump in, uh, and kind of talk about what do we mean by these, the natural processes of the brain being involved in the addiction process? Yeah.
0: So we, as, as animals, every animal, uh, is motivated to find the things that it needs, Right. You can think of um, people often talk about kind of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You may have seen the kind of triangle where at the bottom you have these like physiological needs. Right. We all need to drink water. We all need to eat food. We all need air. Um, we also all need, need safety, we need shelter. And we have certain mechanisms in our brain that keep track of where we're at with these things. There are times when you feel hungry. There are times when you feel thirsty. And those are signals that your body is giving your brain to say, hey, you need to start looking for these things, right? You need to start looking for food. You need to start looking for water. The really amazing thing, though, about being human is that we also have a lot of psychological needs that other animals don't have, right? Most animals in the animal kingdom spend 95% of their time in these kind of physiological and safety needs: finding water, finding salt, finding food, uh, making sure that they're safe from predators, and staying alert. Uh, but we live in these incredibly kind of abundant societies, right? We have all of this food and water at our disposal, uh, and what we're really driven by a lot of the time are a lot of these these social needs, and It's really interesting because if you look at the systems in the brain that we're going to dig into as we as we get through these, these systems that really drive us to search for things, they're the same systems that are involved in all of these different behaviors. They're the systems that motivate us to find water, to find food, to find sex. But they're also the same systems that are motivating to find the psychological needs that we're defining for ourselves as humans, the social needs, the need to belong, to be accepted, to be recognized by other people. Uh, the need to kind of understand ourselves and understand where we fit, kind of finding meaning in life. All of these things are driving us towards kind of filling these, these holes that we have. It's kind of like hunger, but it's kind of a, a psychological hunger. Um, and, and that's a really kind of powerful idea because these systems are involved in wanting and motivating all of that kind of behavior.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the, uh, the thing about about social needs is that we don't always think of them as actually being needed. But um, it like Taylor said, it's the same system in the brain that is motivating us to, uh, to get those social needs, or or maybe it's, um, you know, money or something that seems more abstract than Mm -hmm. food, sex, shelter, um, those kinds of things. And uh, as if you watched our video last week, or or a few weeks back, um, the last episode of The Social Brain, we talked about um, emotions, emotional systems in the brain. And um, this, what we're going to be talking about today, corresponds largely to um, what has sometimes been called the seeking system. And it's this very ancient system in the brain um, that motivates us, drives us to do all the kinds of things that we do, um, whether it's Going towards something that we want, or, or seeking to get away from something that we don't want, um, or that we're you know aversion averted from. Now um, there is a lot of different ways of looking at addiction, and historically there have been different models uh, to try and understand what what is going on here. And one, the first one we're going to discuss is the opponent process theory. And I'll let um, Taylor. You should- <laughs> yeah. Go for
0: it. So there's a there's a, a really nice kind of history here of how we got to where we are now and some of the really powerful stuff that's come out of kind of modern neuroscience. But it's really nice to kind of contextualize a lot of this stuff and to to really kind of give credit to some of these this early work that was done uh, because early on there was uh, this this idea of. Uh, withdrawal really being what was driving a lot of the behaviors that people that were addicted were going through right people kept using because if they stopped it sucked right withdrawal is really painful it's it's really kind of it's not something that anybody likes to go through and so even if you're not getting any benefit from a drug anymore even if you're not really liking the drug anymore you're still using it because you don't want to go through that that withdrawal process and that was, that was a really strong kind of um, idea and theory at the time. And there was a lot of really good science that backed it up that led to this, what's called the opponent process theory. And so when you first use a drug, very first time, your body has never encountered that drug before. It's never learned what that drug does to your brain, to your body. And so you have what's considered a peak experience. The, the very first time you have a drug is... The only time that you're going to have the best time on that drug, Uh, because there's nothing that your body is doing to fight that because it hasn't learned what that drug really is. Um, And so if you're taking kind of opioids for the first time, it's this really kind of pleasurable experience. You have these huge spikes in dopamine, um, same with like methamphetamines and cocaine and all of this kind of stuff. But the body then learns how to fight what you're doing because you're putting your body into a state that's not natural. Um, there was a, there's this really good example. We're going to be talking a lot about dopamine moving forward. Um, dopamine on a normal day is about 50 nanograms. That's how much you have in your brain on a really bad day where you can't even get out of bed in the morning. There's no motivation at all. It's about 40 nanograms. And then on your best day, when you like, you're, you've had sex, you had the best food you've ever had. It goes up to about a hundred. So we're supposed to be between about 40 and hundred. But a lot of the times when you use these, these drugs, you get up into the high hundreds, methamphetamines goes up into the thousands. You're putting your body into an unnatural state. And your body is going to try to fight that because it wants to bring things back into this kind of homeostasis, this equilibrium. Um, and so it creates an opponent process to the drug it creates this whole physiological process that fights what the drug is doing to try to bring your body back into balance. And this is what leads to tolerance. This is what leads to withdrawal is that your body is actually taking away its own natural dopamine, its own natural opiates, because it sees that there's all of this extra in your brain. And then if you don't take the drug, now you're at this super deficient state. You don't have dopamine, you don't have opiates. uh, And so you feel really crappy.
1: Yeah, and just a, a couple points on that. I mean, um, it's really obvious why withdrawal was such a focus of this theory, this opponent process theory, because um, if you've ever seen anybody really going through withdrawal, it's it's a pretty horrible experience. Um, like I had a friend in college who stayed on my couch for a few weeks and was um, quitting basically cold turkey quitting opiates and it, it really bad ones like heroin and, and other stuff. And, um, he just, it was just sick. He was just physically ill. And that's part of this withdrawal process. And especially with opiates, we'll get into this later, but, um, dopamine, dopamine is a chemical that really drives this seeking system, this motivation that we're talking about. But opiates are definitely more involved in the actual pleasure, the actual good feelings that we have in opiates um you may have also heard them referred to as endorphins and these are um these are the the chemicals in our body that kind of are are, are natural painkillers and so they're released when you exercise when you experience some kind of pain so when you flood your system with artificial opiates these opioids you get um you get pleasure obviously but then when they're gone you get pain you get uh this sickness. And, um, not only that your, your dopamine is low. So your motivation is low. So it's just a, an awful state to be in. Um, so that was the, that's the, I guess we we've kind of
0: covered the opponent process theory, but do you have anything else you want to add Uh, on? I mean, there's, there's some interesting stuff that came out of that too, because, uh, what's really kind of powerful and something that's going to come up a lot as we, we move forward is the power of what are called triggers, right? Um, and I'm, I'm sure anyone that's been involved in addiction or anything has heard that term. Uh, it's cues in our environment. It's it's objects, it's places, it's people that are associated with using the drug. Um, and I think a lot of people, something that I really wanna get out throughout this talk is that the cues can be anything, right? Anything that was associated with that drug use. It could just be the room that you usually use it in. And what's happening is that the brain is a predictive machine. It's trying to predict what's going to happen next. And if you walk into your bedroom where you usually use drugs, your brain is automatically going to start kicking all of those opponent processes into gear because it knows that the drug is about to come. And the really interesting part of this, uh, and it's actually probably really useful information for anyone that's addicted to opiates, is that the overdose rates when you're out of town are a lot higher than when you're in town. And it's tied to this opponent process idea. If you walk into your room where you usually do, or you usually shoot up heroin or where you take the opiates or whatever, your body's preparing, it's already getting ready. And so you can take the dose that you usually take and your body's already ready to fight it. But if you're on vacation, if you're in a new environment, if you're around a bunch of stuff that's not associated with your use at all, then your body isn't preparing. And that same dose that you may have taken at home that would have been fine leads to an overdose when you're out of town because wow. those opponent processes didn't kick into effect.
1: That's fascinating. I didn't know that. That's yeah. that's really interesting.
0: There's a lot of police reports that were just showing that like all of these overdoses were like way higher when people were on vacation or when they were out of town. Um, and a lot of it was the same dose that they would have taken at home. And so that led to some of the work that kind of uncovered that. Wow. Wow. Well,
1: so, um, I think we can move
0: to dopamine maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've, and we've talked a little (laughs) bit about it and I have harped about on dopamine on my channel a bit. (laughs) I've got some, some videos about on it. And the biggest uh, misconception about dopamine is that it's the pleasure molecule. And Mm -hmm. from the way that we've been talking, it, it, almost sounds like we're saying it is a pleasure molecule now it's kind of a little bit fuzzy because it does seem like there is a a good feeling a a kind of pleasure associated with dopamine Um, but we'll get into this a little more that there's been these experiments showing that even if you get rid of dopamine in the brain that there are still these pleasure reactions Um, and now you can't really do that in humans, um, at least to the extent that you can do it in animals, but you can show that, uh, dopamine is not the pleasure molecule. Dopamine is as this book oh, should have had it ready. Hang on. <laughs> uh, it's a great book. If you want to learn about this stuff and it's not super technical, it's called the molecule of more, um, by Dan Lieberman and Michael long. And, um, it, that's a great way of just summarizing it. It's the molecule of more of motivation, of do or of um, getting of, of striving, seeking. Um, but then then pleasure is a different system. And pleasure, uh, I have a video about the neuroscience of pleasure on my channel, but it basically comes down to um, dopamine is about motivation and then these opiate, the opioids, the endorphins that we've been talking about, as well as, endogenous cannabinoids, which are the, the kind of brain's version of, of THC and, and CBD, which is um, the active molecules in marijuana. Um, so, opiates and the um, cannabinoids are the kind of pleasure molecules in our brain. It It's a little bit more complicated in that, but um, there is a very large Um, seeking system, the very large dopamine system. And this uh, encompasses brain regions like the basal ganglia and um, some of the frontal cortex. And um, that is a a really ancient system, really large. And then the, the pleasure system is more composed of these hedonic hotspots, as they've been called. And these are actually just really small, uh, little really small regions in the brain uh that when they're stimulated they sh- animals show this pleasure reaction um and uh there's, there's this network of these but it's a much smaller system so we'll get into the significance of that in a little bit but um yeah i guess we we should maybe talk about some of the the actual studies that led to this understanding
0: and i, I think you just touched on something that's it's really powerful um... And, and this is something to really kind of think about as the listener. What Andrew just said is that there's this really, really large and ancient seeking system. And there's these really small spots, hedonic hot spots for pleasure. And it really explains, if you think back on your life, think about the ratio of how many really pleasurable experiences have you had compared to how much desire and how much motivation have you had? right we spend most of our time seeking pleasure and the actual pleasure is actually pretty small it's fragile it's easily disrupted but the actual seeking is really strong and really powerful um and early on so he was kind of hinting at kind of how how we got here right how did we figure this out that there was this distinction cuz early on dopamine was considered the pleasure chemical and in most kind of uh circles today, it's still talked about as the pleasure chemical. And that's just, that's not true at all. Um, and it was because of a lot of work that was being done early on where they were taking dopamine away in rats and they were having them do these, like these mazes where they had to find stuff. And as soon as they kind of reduced the dopamine, the rats stopped seeking the food and they thought, well, it was because they don't like the food anymore. Uh, they also saw that in depressed patients, depressed patients have really low levels of dopamine. And so it was that they just can't experience pleasure, right? That's, that's what, that's, what's going on It's that depressed patients just don't feel pleasure. And that explains depression. Um, and so there was early on, there wasn't really a distinction between liking and wa- wanting. And if you really think about it, like we usually like the things that we want, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to kind of spread those apart. Uh, but there was this really interesting work. Uh, one of my favorite researchers, Kent Barrage, uh, he actually didn't think he was going to find any of this. When you hear him talk, he's like, yeah, 20 years ago, I didn't think I'd be here. Like one of the, the most cited people in addiction research uh, because there was such a powerful theory at the time that dopamine was pleasure. And anyone that was kind of going against that was against the grain, but he was working with rats. And there's, there's a phenomenon when, when infants, even when human adults uh, eat really good food, We have an expression on our face that we're enjoying that food, right? We eat something really sugary. You give an infant a sugary thing and they're going to like love it. They're going to lick their lips, but you give them something bitter or something really, really salty and they're going to like gag and like give a disgust face, right? Uh, that's common across animals, especially across mammals. If you give a mouse really sugary stuff, they're gonna ex- they're gonna have this like enjoyment look on their face. And when you give them disgusting stuff, they're gonna retract. They're gonna look disgusted. And so you can kind of use that as a proxy for whether they like this thing or not. Um, and what they did is they eliminated all of the dopamine neurons in these rats. So they had maybe one percent actual dopamine left. And so they didn't they weren't motivated to do anything they had to feed these rats with IV fluid because they wouldn't get up to get a drink they wouldn't get up to eat food but when they gave them sugary stuff they still liked it and when they gave them bitter stuff they still didn't like it and so it showed that there was this distinction between wanting something and liking something and it really led to this idea that dopamine is not about pleasure it's about the motivation to go get things And that's a really powerful idea. I mean, a lot of the times we hear people talk about dopamine where it's like, I just need to get my dopamine hit. I need to feel good or whatever. Uh, That's not it. Dopamine is desire. Dopamine is seeking things, right? And I think one of the most important things to really kind of think about that we'll kind of get into as we move forward is that it's what's considered state dependent. Is that so we started this whole idea talking about needs, right? We have a need for food. We have a need for water. All of these things, right? If you're really hungry and you're walking down the street and you smell some really good food, you're going to get really hungry. You're going to be motivated. Your dopamine going to kick in. You're going to get motivated to go and find that food or to find food in general because you're in a hungry state. You need food. But if you just ate a really big meal and you smell really good food, you're not going to be motivated to get food really important idea moving forward yeah yeah and
1: um uh i want to get to this question in the chat um yeah. before i say something about that just one more example of um of the separation of wanting and liking that you might see in your daily life is i don't know for me i when i see a case of donuts i just like i want to eat the entire thing and sometimes <laughs> i'll buy one And then I'll eat it and I'll be like, I don't know, that just, it wasn't like the look of it looked so much better than what it actually tasted like. And I was so motivated to get it. And then I ate it and I'm like, this isn't, this isn't nearly as good. I don't feel that good after this. Um, But anyway, that's a bit of kind of a trivial example. Mm -hmm. But we have this uh, question in the chat from Bruce. Uh, He asks, addiction seems like it is a very invested and almost at the goal kind of feeling. Opposite of tiredness, dissuasion from starting a task. Am I understanding that right? I would say, yeah. Basically, um, it's the yeah. You are you're very invested. You're you're motivated. You want to achieve this thing. You're you're getting there. Um, what would what would you say about that, Taylor?
0: yeah, I mean, I think it kind of comes back to this idea that dopamine is such an ancient system. Um, and it's primarily involved in in motion, right? It's for movement, through the world. It's when dopamine is high, that means we need to explore. We need to move, we need to find things. Um, and so that kind of ties into this like it's this goal oriented process, right? It's not this like this rest and digest. Uh, there's actually these these really early studies that look at like, these are evident in like single cell, uh, not single cell, but like early uh, multicellular organisms. Their dopamine is super, super ancient. And they found that uh, if something, if this organism, this really tiny organism was looking for food and it found food, then dopamine stopped because it was like, I need to stay here and I need to eat. But as soon as it was done eating, dopamine kicked back on and it was like, okay, I'm done eating now I need to explore. Uh, And that's kind of a really kind of ancient example, but it ties into how kind of involved these processes are in everything that we do is that it is this exploratory process. It's, It's saying, I don't have something that I need and I need to go find it. Um, and I think this ties really well into some of the like needs-based stuff we were talking about at the beginning. Is that we as humans have needs that are a lot harder to define, right? These these social needs, these needs for acceptance and recognition and things like that, uh, where it's a lot harder to figure out what the end goal of some of that stuff is. Um, and there's a lot of evidence showing that like lack of acceptance and recognition coming from houses of abuse and things like that lead to addiction because we have these, these holes that we're trying to fill and we're trying to find any way that we can to kind of get to the end of that goal. But I digress.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, great question (laughs) and keep those questions coming or comments or anything. Um, all right. Well, we've talked a lot about wanting and liking and dopamine and opiates and, um, maybe, uh, and you were just mentioning environmental cues and state dependence. Um, So what, you know, how do we get to um, where does like, the person's, uh, it seems like this is also automatic, we're talking about um, how these these systems activate. And it Mm -hmm. seems like we're saying that that people almost just automatically gravitate towards the the substance or whatever they're addicted to and maybe we can kind of get into uh, maybe willpower isn't the right word for it but uh the role of like the frontal lobe and how it it um affects this
0: yeah absolutely because what we've kind of built up so far um is this this kind of new way of of viewing kind of dopamine of viewing these systems and something that was really left out in a lot of the early research, we talked about withdrawal being this like main driver of understanding for addiction. Is that people kept using because they wanted to avoid withdrawal. That doesn't explain why someone who has just gone through detox, then relapses the day after, right? They just went through this hell of detox. And I mean, the rates are extremely high. When you look at opioid relapse, a lot of it's like 60% the day after they just went through detox. But then there's also this idea of months later, years later, still having these like these cravings and these urges that are really driving us to, to still seek that thing that we decided to stop using. Um, and that was missing from a lot of these these early ideas. And what Kent Barrage, this idea of dopamine as being motivational, um, really kind of contributed to. Was this idea that what dopamine is actually doing is it's tagging things in our environment as being important predictors of good things happening, right? So if I use a drug and I feel really, really good, the brain wants to feel good it wants to kind of replicate that situation in the future. And so it's going to pay attention to everything around that drug. It's gonna pay attention to, like I said earlier, the the room that you're in, the people that you're with, the smells, the feelings, the emotions, it's gonna pay attention to all of that. And it's gonna tag those things as being important predictors of getting that drug in the future. And this is what really leads to these, these triggers that I think are really, really important. If you're someone that suffers from addiction, if you have a friend that suffers from addiction, focusing in on what are those things that get the craving going in the first place? Because as Andrew said, most of what we've talked about so far has been this kind of like automatic thing, right? We see this thing in the environment, we see a room that we do drugs in, we see a person that we did drugs with, and all of a sudden our brain is just taking over, is saying, we need to get that thing, we need to go, we need to go those systems are ancient impulse systems. They're things that get us to act in the moment right now. But what Andrew was hinting at is that we have a way to fight that. And we as humans have a frontal lobe. And so do you want to kind of dig into, you know, a ton about the frontal lobe. Well, maybe not as much as you do, but um, (laughs) the,
1: yeah, we have a highly developed frontal lobe and um, the, the, the frontal lobe, especially the ventral um, part of it, the the bottom um, where the brain kind of curls over in the front, um, that has direct connections to these systems, to these like emotional, but also this seeking system that we're talking about. And so there's this this power of the frontal lobe to be able to regulate these systems, and um, and that's why you know we don't always go for the donuts or for the drug if we're quitting. Um, it's this ability to actually tamp down some of that activity and to maybe even reframe uh, what our goals are. And remember that our goal is um, our, our, what our long-term goals are, whether it's like our own health or um, you know just getting away from these, these drugs that can be so damaging. Um, when we're able to kind of instantiate those goals in our frontal cortex, we can sort of r- rely on those and allow us to override this wanting system a little bit. that's that's definitely like a thirty thousand foot overview of what's going on. But um, yeah, maybe you can say a little more. no, I, I
0: think it's I think it's a great picture that you just painted because, um, there's, there's a whole field of neuroscience called neuroeconomics that's really interested in how we make decisions in a moment-to-moment basis, right? And these neuroscientists that are looking at the brain have figured out that there's actually these like competing systems, that there's one of our, one of our brain systems is the one that we've been talking about this whole time. It's this seeking system, this really powerful dopamine system that's very impulsive, It wants to make decisions right now. It wants to motivate behavior right now to take advantage of any opportunities that are in our environment, right? You see a cue, I need drugs right now, right? I need to figure out how to make that happen right now. Um, The frontal lobe, on the other hand, which is this amazing kind of superpower that we have as humans is a reflective device. It allows us to think about the current moment But then to also keep in mind all of these other long-term goals that we have in mind. And so it's saying like, well, that's not really in line with what I need a week from now. And it's actually going to be at a detriment to my long-term goals. And so I'm not going to do that. And it's able to regulate these other systems. It's able to turn them down. It's able to say, no, we're not going to act impulsive right now. We're going to keep these long-term goals in mind. And we're going to keep our behavior kind of towards that direction. The problem is that we've seen this in tons of neuroscience studies that people that suffer from addiction have frontal lobes that are a lot lower in kind of activity levels than healthy controls. Uh, There's lots of these kind of decision making tasks that we have people do uh, where they have to like stop themselves from kind of some impulsive button pushing or they have to stop themselves from taking kind of these cards in this card game or whatever. Uh, But what has come out of those has shown that people that are suffering from addiction are not using their frontal lobe as much. And what's happening is there's this whole idea in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. The more you act impulsively, the stronger your impulsive system is going to get. But it's not this like this death sentence right it's not that because you have a really strong impulsive system you're never going to be able to think long term again because the frontal lobe is a muscle if you use it it gets more powerful it starts to wire to the, the systems it starts to gain more control over the impulses but the frontal lobe is a very active process you have to engage in that type of thought You have to bring those things to mind in that moment and remind yourself like, no, I do have long-term goals. I have these aspirations. I've reminded myself that I'm not gonna act impulsively, that I'm not gonna take these drugs. And the more you do that, the stronger that process becomes.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. The, The massive capacity for plasticity is not just confined to the brain regions that are driving us towards these rewarding experiences, whether they're drugs or food or whatever, um, but also within the system that's keeping that in check. Um, I wanna get to uh, Bruce, uh, another question from Bruce in the chat, um, but I also just wanted to um, mention this quote I had. Um, I, there's this researcher, I, I believe he's still at um, the uh, Anschutz Medical Center at the University of Colorado. His name's Jared Ellingson and he does a lot of work mostly on um, kind of like the genetic influences on drug addiction. But he has this, I, I interviewed him a while back, and he had this great quote about um, the uh, the dual systems theory that we are talking about right now that I think just kind of sums up what we're talking about. And um, sorry, now <laughs> I gotta find it. But he said, yeah, so the idea is that if I and this uh, relates to the, the sort of imbalances that Taylor was just talking about, where many people who suffer from addiction have this kind of um, weaker cognitive control or or just um, problems with cognitive control. And he he uh, emphasizes, he says, quote, the the idea is that if I have a strong drive for drug reward, and I also lack the capacity to keep those drives in check, then I'm going to use more often. I'm even going to use more often in circumstances where there are negative consequences, then over the course of my life, that could show up as substance use disorder. Um, and he talks about how there's there's these genes kind of in both directions, uh, predisposing us both to the seeking like the, the, the reward side of it, and then also to the cognitive control. Um, and before I get to Bruce's question, is anything you want to
0: add on to that, Taylor? Uh, I, I think you're, you're touching on something that's really important that we haven't really discussed much is that there are individuals that are more susceptible to addiction, to these processes. Um, you mentioned genetic influences. I think that there's, there's definitely evidence for that from uh, twin studies where you have twins that may have been separated or even kind of grew up in the same household where uh, they have kind of similar propensities to addiction. Um, but also kind of adoptive kind of uh, studies, too, where you have adoptive adopted children that have the similar kind of addictive tendencies to their birth parents um, instead of the the parents that they were actually raised with. But I think something that is very much being recognized uh, in the addiction world today is that there are also a lot of kind of environmental factors that can drive your brain into these states as well. Um, If you grow up in an abusive household, if you go through a ton of trauma, Um, these, these systems are geared towards seeking things and then getting some type of reward at the end. Right. And so if you spend your whole life, never getting to that reward, being told that you're worthless, right. Being told that you're never going to accomplish anything that affects these systems that affects their ability to kind of enact in the moment. And you end up in these deficient states where when you do have a drug, it's that much more powerful because you didn't have any of that to begin with, if that kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, to- that That definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned twin studies, because uh, that was a lot of what um, Jared Ellingson and I talked about. But um, uh, yeah, he yeah, anyway, sorry, I, I want to get to this question in the yeah. chat. Um, I keep getting onto new quotes that I want to say. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Bruce asks, what's the difference between obsession and addiction? Uh, and I think the second part is also a question. I get into similar mind frames when I feel like I need a cigarette and when I feel like I need to finish a project.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're you're tapping into something important. Uh, we haven't really talked much about what are considered process addictions, uh, which are behavioral in nature, right? Most of what we've been talking about has been about substances. We're addicted to drugs, we're addicted to alcohol, whatever it is. Um, and then that's causing these kind of changes in our brain. These researchers that have figured a lot of this stuff out early on didn't think that they were going to find a link between behavioral kind of impulses and compulsions and these kind of drug compulsions or food compulsions. Um, But a lot of the literature now is coming to a head and saying gambling addiction, sex addiction, uh, video game addiction. Um, all of these things that are behavioral in nature that don't really have a substance associated with them are still kind of involving these same systems. And I think it kind of comes back to this, this earlier idea that I had that this, these systems are needs-based, right? They They seek out what we feel like we're lacking. And if you feel like you're lacking a complete project, then these systems are going to motivate you to complete that project because you... Uh, there was a really good quote from Kent Barrage and I'm paraphrasing. Um, but he was talking about how these systems are extremely ancient and really, really powerful. And that for most of the animal kingdom, they've been used for seeking these kind of physiological and safety things, right? Seeking food and water and safety from predators and sex. But what we think is happening now is that our ability as humans to create these new psychological needs that are cognitive in nature are actually plugging into the same system. It's the same wanting system, but it's now being motivated to seek different things. Yeah, and you can imagine
1: that's that's an economical way for the brain to work to to use mm-hmm. this same system that is so powerful at driving us toward food and and these needs um, to mm-hmm. to use that for for stuff that is. I mean, another way of thinking about this is that. Um, those those bigger projects, those longer term projects, like if you want to write a book or you're trying to, I don't know, get into grad school or or whatever it is, it could be anything. Um, oftentimes, those are still kind of connected back to these Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Whether it's mm-hmm. um, a need for for many people, it's a social recognition, which I don't know if it's ne- necessarily <laughs> healthy or not, but um, that's you know part of this or just knowing that you've accomplished something that you wanted to, um, you know, being uh, having to do with maybe self-confidence or just uh, these kind of brain molecules like pleasure molecules that we we need um, for our well-being. Um, I know that's kind of an abstract way of talking about that, but it's good to kind of relate these these bigger, more abstract goals back to, uh what's what's happening in the brain how does this relate to this like needs-based
0: um functioning of the the dopamine system really and i think you're touching on something that's really powerful for individuals uh because this is something i think about all the time is that we as humans have this incredible ability to define our needs Uh, that if we really put the work in, if we spend the time thinking about kind of who we are and what it is that we need to accomplish and actually make these goals, uh, those goals are priming these systems, but you need to put that work in, you need to define what it is that you need, what those end goals are. What's the target that I'm going towards, but it puts so much kind of ownership and power in your hands. That you can spend that time defining what your values are, defining what your beliefs are. I mean, that's what the top of Maslow's hierarchy really is. This idea of self-actualization is spending some time with yourself, thinking about who you are, what the meaning in your life is. And when you spend that time and you actually put that work in, you're creating targets for this wanting system to then seek. But... I think the really important thing to keep in mind, though, too, is that a lot of people can kind of uh, probably relate to losing motivation for some of these things, right? If you have these long-term projects, like how do I keep myself motivated? The problem is, is that a lot of these lower needs, psychological, these physiological and other things are driven by state. They're driven by hunger. They're driven by thirst. So you actually have to remind yourself why that goal is important. You have to engage your frontal lobe you have to think about these long-term goals consistently to remind your wanting system why it's seeking that in the first place
1: yeah and i I think an important point about that is kind of something that if anybody's familiar with like andrew huberman the huberman lab podcast um he talks a lot about this kind of dopamine loop and um the need to to close that loop meaning to accomplish that goal to get the feedback like the the Mm -hmm. reward that you're actually seeking. And I think that's where, when you have these really long-term projects, in addition to focusing on why is that goal important? What are my values here? What am I pursuing? um, That's all extremely important as Taylor mentioned, but also often for people, it's getting the sort of intermediate, like uh, dopamine loops, closing those. So getting that, accomplishing smaller goals on the way to a larger goal uh, can allow you to kind of keep that motivation, keep that dopamine rolling forward, keep you going towards that goal. But of course, none of that is really going to matter if you don't actually want to accomplish the thing that you're going towards. Uh, So yeah, that that purpose that what's my value here? What am I pursuing? That's, I think, primary and then having these um, maybe intermediate accomplishments along the way that keep Mm -hmm. you motivated.
0: And I think this really leads well into uh, some of the other things that we kind of promised we were going to talk about is kind of how to fight addiction in the first place, right? If we're thinking about addiction as this this kind of dual process system where you have these, these really impulsive kind of short-term reward reward drives that are really powerful, but then you also have a frontal lobe. You have the ability to think about the future. Um I don't want you to think about it as like these impulsive systems are bad and these long-term ones are good. They work in tandem with one another. They're constantly in communication with one another, but you have to facilitate that communication. And there's these fascinating studies that are actually showing that just getting addicted patients to think about the future actually starts to repair their frontal lobe. Like, and it's it's just simple stuff. Like, think about your goals. Think about what you want to do. Try to imagine what your future looks like. When you do that, you're engaging your frontal lobe and you're starting to strengthen the, the processes within the frontal lobe to be able to fight these impulsive things. And I mean, that was just, that's not drugs. That's not anything. That's just spend some time with yourself. Spend some frontal lobe time, really thinking about who you are and what you want to accomplish and what the future looks like. Just doing that is strengthening your frontal lobe enough to start fighting these impulsive systems.
1: Yeah. And I think for a lot of people that can come in the form of like, what type of person do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to lead? And I've never personally um, had like a severe drug addiction or anything, but like I said at the beginning, I've had friends who have gone through some pretty uh, nasty ones and, um, yeah, I think for a lot of them, it's, it's like picturing that future person as as a really fulfilled individual who doesn't need this, this substance that they might not even really like the experience anymore. As we talked about earlier, the wanting and liking systems can become decoupled and often do it for addicts. Um, so it's like, I don't even I think also another quote from or, or no, this was something else, but, but that people want, they want to not want the drug, which is like an interesting thing right there. It's, it's kind of that cognitive control system, battling it out with that lower, um, you know, motivation seeking system. And it's yeah. So I think it's a great point. It's, it's something that, uh, I think even all of us, like if you're if you're wanting to, say, eat less sugar or I don't know, cut down on your coffee or um, anything that you feel like is maybe not uh, disrupting your life that much, but is something you want to get out of your life to be healthier. Um, These thinking about who you want to be in the future. Do you want to be that person who's, you know. shoveling down oreos every night and just feel terrible in the morning um, or do you want to have like a healthier life where you don't really need that
0: um yeah anyway just and i think I, you're touching on something that's really important that uh ties into the work that i do so the, the the work that i personally do is involving like identity and identity in the brain and like where our sense of identity really falls uh, something that I think is really, really powerful. Identity is, is a frontal lobe thing, it's what it what the neuroscience seems to, to be pointing at. Um, and the frontal lobe is a very kind of goal-oriented thing. It's like these long-term goals. Our identity is, is this long-term goal of who we want to be and what we want to accomplish. Um, but it's so much more powerful than the idea of something like a diet. Like, I hate the term diet because... A diet has this like end goal of just losing a certain amount of, of weight, right? And it's like, okay, I hit that goal. Now what? Do I go back to eating Oreos every night and feeling like crap <laughs> in the morning? Yeah, uh, It's an identity process. If you really want to, to lose the weight, you need to adopt an identity that says I'm a healthy person, that I eat healthy food, and that I enjoy healthy food. That's who I am. You can, de- you can define those things. You can get into your own head and change who you are. The problem is, is that oftentimes we take a lot more from people around us about who we are than we do from ourselves. Like we're constantly trying to meet the expectations of other people. And those are what's really defining who we are. And, and giving us ideas of maybe worthlessness or not being enough or whatever that leads back to having these like compulsive eating or compulsive drug use or whatever it is. You need to spend that frontal lobe time. You need to think about who you are, what your identity is and who you want to be. And that is going to feed back into all of these systems and allow you to be successful in doing these things.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not how do you want to look to other people, but how do you want to be for yourself. I mean, you have to spend the rest of your life with yourself. So might as well be a person that you can stand, you know, and that you you enjoy
0: being. The, the other really important thing I want to get to too is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's one of the kind of most used therapies when we're dealing with addiction. It's used in kind of the prison system. It's used by thousands of therapists across the United States. Um, and I think it's really important to kind of ground a little bit in, in what it is and relate it back to what we were just talking about. There was uh, there's this really kind of famous story from uh, a philosopher, uh, Nietzsche, I think is who it was, but uh, he was talking about the, a gambling addict. And he was talking about how this gambling addict sat down one night and realized all of this pain that he was inflicting on his family, right? I'm I'm wasting all of our money. Um, I'm constantly fighting with my wife. I don't want to gamble anymore. And he sat there and he made these affirmations. I'm not going to gamble anymore. I'm not going to gamble anymore. The next week, he's walking through town, past this table where gambling is going on, and in that moment, he wants to gamble. The problem is, is in that moment, he is a different person than he was a week ago, and he needs to reinstate all of those affirmations that he had a week ago in that moment. He needs to say in that moment, I don't want to gamble anymore. I'm not a gambler. And that really is kind of a window into what CBT really is, um, is this idea that you have this, this trigger, this cue in the environment that starts these thought processes that says, ooh, gambling looks nice. Ooh, that drug looks nice, right? I, You know what? Just one, maybe, right? And you start to see this cascade of thoughts that are, that are feeding the wanting system, that it's saying, I, I really want this. I really want this that's going to start snowballing into a craving. It's going to start turning into this really large urge, this really large desire that's going to be really hard for you to overcome as it gets more powerful. CBT is stepping in right at the beginning, noticing that trigger, noticing, hey, this is not who I am. This is I made these affirmations. I don't want this. This is irrational. This is my, my motivational system taking over. In that moment saying, I'm going to fight this right now. I'm going to reaffirm who I am. I'm going to challenge these irrational beliefs that I have, and I'm going to replace them with healthy ones in this moment, right now.
1: Yeah, that's that's really important. That's really great. And like, just to talk a little more about the the CBT itself, I mean, I think a good way that I've always visualized this, and I've because I've heard cognitive behavioral therapists refer to this as if you think of um, a triangle and at the um each point is uh there's there's behaviors cognitions and emotions and so you can think of that as you know um, action um thoughts and feelings and these three things are constantly influencing each other and um so a a thought can lead to a, a thought of um you know, you see, or a perception, you, know, you see one of your cues, like a, a cigarette or something, and that can lead to this emotion, this desire for a cigarette, this feeling that you need to satisfy it, and that can lead to a behavior. But, you know, that's not the only way, that's not the only direction that that triangle can work in. And what Taylor's saying is, um, looks like my video might have stopped. Um,
0: Sorry, I can still hear you. <laughs>
1: all right um sorry guys uh hopefully everyone can still hear me um hang on just one second sorry let me see if this helps no uh well taylor you you finish my thought there i'm gonna try to fix my camera really fast
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah there's a there's actually like a, a buddhist quote like We want to go even more ancient. A lot of CBT kind of falls in line with some of the the Buddhist ideas was that um, a thought becomes a word, a word becomes an action, an action becomes a deed that hardens into character and habit over time. So watch your thoughts with care. Um, It's this idea that there's this kind of snowballing effect that can happen if we're not putting those thoughts in check if we're not saying like, I need to I need to stop this thought right now in the moment before it then turns into kind of these urges and these feelings and then turns into these behaviors, and then if I keep doing those behaviors, those turn into habits. And then those habits kind of harden into character and kind of become who I am. It becomes my identity. Um, and so if you think about that, you can kind of start at the end, you can start with identity and work your way back and say, wait, this is not who I wanted to be. And so this thought is not going to lead to the right end point and i need to stop this thought right now before it turns into these actions that turn me into a different person that i don't want to become
1: yeah and and often um uh like reframing those thoughts is kind of the way to do that rethinking about what is this or reframing the the feeling or desire like kind of just thinking about it in a different way okay i'm feeling this desire for food or for i mean sugar or nicotine or uh, opiates but um can i can i see that as okay this is momentary and it is not going this is really going to mess up my progress toward my long-term goal which is a lot more important to me in the end i know that's a a trivial example but uh it's just another way of thinking about it it, really
0: and i think it it ties in too with uh (laughs) mindfulness, right? Mindfulness, uh, for those of you listening that think that mindfulness is religious, it's, it's not. Uh, mindfulness is just kind of being present in the moment. And it's a reflective process. It's kind of watching your thoughts, watching your emotions. Uh, and that can be really powerful in these moments of just like, instead of kind of acting, instead of going with these thoughts, sit there and reflect on them. Think about them. What is this thought? Where is it coming from? What is this feeling? We just had this whole podcast a couple of weeks ago um, about emotions. And there's a lot of people that think that that there's a huge cognitive portion of emotions that we have these feelings. But then what a lot of the work is, is defining those feelings is saying like, oh, well, based on where I'm at and all of these things, that's this must be sadness or this must be happiness or whatever. Uh, there's a lot of power in that reflection. And mindfulness allows you to just kind of sit in that moment and like watch these things, watch these urges, understand what they are, where they're coming from. uh, And that gives you power moving forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I just noticed something in the chat, but I believe um, uh, from Zara, it might be on your side, but it it looks like uh, it's in Arabic. And I'm sorry, I wish I could (laughs) <laughs> Read that and and respond to it. but, um anyway, yeah, so um uh, mindfulness is is ex- seems like it, it's can be extremely useful um here and and um just getting in touch with those interoceptive signals, the the signals coming from your body um, and seeing what is actually going on. What does this actually feel like in the moment? Can I withstand this feeling? until it subsides, or can I distract myself from it? Is there a way of dealing with this that yep. isn't my instant urge to satisfy that craving?
0: Yep. Um, and so it looks like we're uh, we're running out of time here, but I, I hope that this gave all of you some power that might be going through some things. I mean, we all deal with some type of compulsion in our lives, something that, that we're, we're drawn to, something that we desire, uh, and you need to know that you have the power. We have these amazing frontal lobes as humans that give us this this ability to reflect, to think about who we are, to think about what we want to accomplish. Uh, and that really engaging those is what's going to give you the ability to fight these urges in the first place. To, to really create plans around how to, how to fight this uh, and to re this all the time. Think, I am a good person. Or, Not a good person. That's kind of the moral model. I am <laughs> a healthy person. I'm someone that, that doesn't want to use. I'm someone that wants to, to provide for my family, that wants to be connected with my family. And those powerful ideas, if you're constantly reinstantiating them, are going to allow you to fight those urges in the moment.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, we don't want to be, get uh, moralistic as Taylor was just noticing, but, but, you know, maybe there is a, a small element of that, of being, being the person that you want to be for your own life and for the people that you care about. Maybe there is kind of this moral aspect of it too, that can help uh, solidify that goal is really important to you. But um, again, we're like not thinking so much about, oh, how will I look in my my social circles, social standing and all that, but focusing in on what's truly important to you. And I think those goals can be a lot more powerful. Um, but yeah, I, I think we, you know, there's a lot more we could touch on. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the the cognitive behavioral side and all that. And that, of course, is primary, but we should acknowledge that sometimes uh, drugs like, um, like buprenorphine, uh, that um are kind of weak opiate agonists or there there's other i can't think of other drugs for for other. um, yeah yeah that Mm -hmm. are useful for some people when they have a really severe addiction and you know we we shouldn't ignore these genetic and biological influences like we mentioned that there are genes that predispose you to um addiction or at least to kind of sensation seeking and there are also genes that may predispose your cognitive control systems to not be able to tamp down those urges or re-formulate um, them as easily. But of course, the brain has plasticity. We are able to change ourselves through our experiences and our behaviors, our practices, our goals, our planning. Um, so that's all really important. But you know, I don't want to completely dismiss the fact that This is truly a a chemical biological process that can be extremely difficult and often takes many uh, years and and many tries of going through withdrawal and quitting to actually get to that point. So I just want to honor, you know, how difficult that is for some people. And it it may sound like just a quick one, two step, set your goals and then you're good. But um, we, we both, of course, recognize that that's that's not the full truth.
0: Yeah. And I mean, some common quotes from uh, from AA, from Narcotics Anonymous, uh, if you work it, it works. And a lot of what those those programs are espousing is the day-to-day fight, right? That's what we're talking about right now, is that it's one day at a time. And it's actually, it's one minute at a time, one hour at a time. And in those moments, it's really reminding yourself who you are, and reminding yourself that it's worth the fight. So Uh, I just wanted to thank everybody for for tuning in, for listening. Uh, We are very open to ideas. If you want us to cover any type of kind of brain stuff in the future, social neuroscience type stuff, uh, just kind of leave a comment. My channel is The Cellular Republic and Andrew's is Sense of Mind. Uh, and there's lots of ways that you can kind of help. You can subscribe to each of our channels. You can like the videos, you can leave comments on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. But I just wanted to say thank you for listening. Yeah. And check out Taylor's store. He's
1: got a bunch of, I it's still up, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mention yeah. That. Okay, good. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah. cool merch, neuroscience merch there. So if you want to like really show your, your nerdiness and your neuroscience <laughs> enthusiasm, like we do, um, do it go for it oh and we got one more comment from bruce in the chat you guys are awesome keep it up thank you so much bruce thanks Thanks, for watching and for commenting um yeah you know keep those comments coming even after we get off the live let us know any questions or topics you want to cover
0: like taylor said
1: awesome see you guys all right see y'all